Welcome to Ginspired, brought to you by theginshop.ca. This podcast will take you on a journey into the world of gin, where you'll experience this versatile spirit in ways you never thought possible. Now the host of Ginspired, Heather E. Wilson. Hello and welcome to Ginspired, where we talk about and celebrate everything about the wonderful juniper lace spirit called gin. I'm your host, Heather E. Wilson. And on today's episode, I welcome Rick Pipes, co-owner and head distiller of Marydale Cidery and Distillery, located on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada. And today we chat about how it all started, their philosophy on product development and sustainability, of course, their gins, and so, so much more. Welcome, Rick. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Great to chat. But first, before we get into our conversation, as with all episodes, let's start by sharing what we are drinking today. So, Rick, you get to go first. What are you drinking today? Well, I'm going to drink our latest gin, which is our third gin that we've released. And we call it Cowichan Aura Gin because it's a beautiful purple aura to it. Maybe even some would call it a purple haze. No, it's not hazy at all. It's the latest gin we've released. It sort of fills in a gap in the flavor profile of our other two gins and a slightly different process. And as with anything gin related, other than putting juniper in, the palette's wide open. And so this was another creative brainstorm is wrong. It was, oh, why don't we try making something like this? And the colored gins are fanciful and fun and becoming more popular. Yes. So are you having it neat? All of our spirits, actually, we make them so that they're enjoyable neat. We really focus heavily on making sure that they don't burn that they're clean, the alcohol is clean, the botanicals are clean, and whatever you're trying to get in that spirit has to be enjoyable neat or in a cocktail. That's one of our goals. So no, I'm not going to drink it neat today. I'm going to just drink it really simple, gin or a gin. Today I've got a San Pellegrino citrus tonic, and I've grabbed this one because this third gin of ours uses an awful lot of citrus in it to enhance and bring out and brighten and freshen the aroma from the juniper and the other botanicals because it's quite floral. So the floral is sort of a suppressed aroma and the citrus opens it up. And then of course, tonic with its bubbles always opens up the spirit as well. So it's just gin, the tonic, And then this one I like to finish with a lemon, just a lemon garnish. Fresh lemon is great because there actually is fresh lemon extract that we've made in the gin. Wow. Well, it sounds like almost identical to what I'm having. (laughs) You sent it to me and told me to have it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, you know what? It's better to drink the same thing because then you can experience the same taste. I, I think so. Now... I'm actually using fever tree tonic, so, you know, slightly different. And I had to add a little splash of lemon juice and I used a dried lemon peel. So I'm really close to what you're having. Probably tasting almost exactly the same, but still super yummy and love the color for sure. Okay, but let's back it up a little bit and talk about you first, because we could talk about gin all day long, which we will. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about you and your background. Did you always love gin? What drew you to distilling? Like how the heck did you end up with a cidery and a distillery? I'll talk about the cidery and distillery first, then I'll talk about gin. Wife and I, 25 years ago, about, 
were looking for a venture that we could do together that would be cool and experiential. And I was a practicing commercial lawyer at the time. And this came across my desk. Mary Dale Sidery came across my desk. And in fact, I acted for someone who put an offer together, but then never got their financing together and didn't buy it. So because of the full control and full vertical integration, both my wife and I have business degrees as well. And so we thought, well, you know, if you're going to go into business, you sh- if you're controlling everything from raw materials to production to distribution to sales to marketing, that's a full test of whether or not you've got any business acumen. And you get to live on a farm. So why not? So we were either arrogant or ignorant. I think more <laughs> ignorance than arrogance because we thought, sure, we can do this. We knew nothing about farming. We were city people. We never made alcohol before. I don't even think I'd been to a U-Brew. Were you gin drinkers? No, no. In fact, until we started doing distilling, which was in 2007, we were one of the early craft distillers on the West Coast. And I hadn't had gin since I was in high school. And that was lemon gin. And it was gross. We won't go there. (laughs) Yeah. I had it at a party once. and I Oh, I don't like gin. But the gin focus. So we started making brandies originally in 2007 because we're fruit-based. We grow apples, we use pears. So we were using fruits to make brandies once we got our still and we started playing. Then as more and more distilleries started to come around, North Americans are way behind the Europeans in terms of their enjoyment of spirit. Brandies as their aperitifs, as digestives. So we're not really a spirits culture here yet. We're a blossoming spirits culture. As more and more distilleries came on board, most of them were grain-based, and they had to wait three years to get whiskey. And so a bunch of them started fooling around with vodkas and gins, because those are a neutral spirit, a clear spirit. They don't need aging, and you can get them to market. This is my perception. Nobody said this, but you're waiting three years for your whiskey. What are you going to do for revenue? So then everybody started getting quite creative. And Gin is inspiring, because other than putting juniper in, the distiller and the blenders get to do whatever they want. It's sort of cool. So you get the whole range of colors in your palette. You get to paint whatever picture you want as long as juniper's in there. So that was my interest in gin, not drinking gin, making gin. Creativity side. Yeah, but of course, in order to make gin, you have to drink gin. You do. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I bought probably 40 different commercial gins. I'm making that number. It could be 30, could be 50, who knows. And I would buy them and then taste them. What do I like? What don't I like? And I taste them all neat. That's the best way for me to taste them. And by that point, I'd been distilling for probably six or seven years, mainly doing brandies and whiskeys. And so we actually, in our house, this is how our house liquor cabinet looks, is there'll be 20 bottles of gin or 30 bottles of vodka or whatever. And they all have like two glasses out of them. (laughs) Because, okay, so I take notes. What do I like? What don't I like? Then at that time, we were doing a lot of tours in the distillery, trying to generate some buzz because we were one of the few distilleries on Vancouver Island. And so we were bringing people in and trying to get them excited about spirits. We were trying to sell our brandies, really. Brandies are still a slow mover relative to gins and whiskeys and rums. So while I was doing the tours, 
I started off, I would say to people, oh, we're going to make some gin. Who's a gin drinker in the group? And so if it was a group of 40, you'd never have more than 10 gin drinkers. So it was never more than 25%. Right. And so I'd say, okay, what do you like? What's your favorite gin? I was trying to get a feel yeah. for you know, where was I going to? Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of impromptu market research. People were paying for a tour and I was pumping them. So... And then after about a year of this, you know, and I was trying to dial it in, a little light bulb went on. I went, oh my gosh, in every one of my tours, three quarters of the people are not gin drinking. So why am I trying to make a gin when it's less than 25% of the market? And actually, I didn't realize that. My wife said that to me. Um, so <laughs> She's smart. <laughs> yeah, she's the smart marketer. I'm not. So then I started, I changed my whole tour focus. When I asked the question, I'd say, who's a gin drinker in here? Okay, all you people who don't drink gin, why don't you drink gin? What don't you like about gin? Why don't you ever buy it? And it was almost always too bitter, too much like the forest, those kind of things, right? So They had a it was, trauma with lemon gin when they were younger. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so it was always staring me in the face because of my own gin problem, right? So then we set out to make a gin that was friendly, an approachable gin, a gentle gin, I call it. Right. So that was our first gin, was our Couchin gin, which was a gentle gin, heavily focused because we're really all about farming sustainability. And we've been doing the 10-mile diet focus since 2004, when before it was even trendy, it was called slow food at that time. It was a movement out of Europe. So we thought, okay, so let's gather up a whole bunch of botanicals that are representative of where we are. So our original gin had 47 botanicals. In it. Sort of silly, sort of crazy, because most of them you couldn't pick up. So, But we started trying to build our gentle gin, which was actually the first gin we released. We started trying to build the gentle gin, but right. our still is actually designed to optimize for brandies. Okay. It's not a gin still. Ours is a Mueller still. It's got what they call an aromat, which is instead of plates, it's got a copper helix to okay. preserve the aromas. But it's not really optimized for making gin. Huh. So there are three conventional methods for getting your aromas, your flavors, your extracts, basically any alcohol. One is hot maceration, where you put it in the pot and you cook it. Yep. Another one is what they call a gin basket, where you suspend your botanicals above your liquid and the vapors go through the basket and then do the extraction with the vapors. That's a, It gives a slightly different flavor and if you use, let's say, juniper as your the key ingredient, the hot maceration and the vapor maceration are quite different in their end effect. And then the third one is what I call cold maceration, which is basically you soak your botanicals in alcohol and then use that as an extract, a flavor extract. And so in order to get our gin to have a balanced flavor, we were looking for a balanced flavor, some juniper in it, but a real balance and heavily focused on local botanicals. That was the goal on the first gin. Well, we were learning how to get the proper extraction using different methods out of our gin. So I made seven batches of gin, each of them a couple hundred liters. And I didn't make them all at once. I made one and it was, ah, I need to tweak this. This is a little weak or this is wrong. This is too strong. This is too weak. So it ended up a batch after a batch after a batch after a batch. So I had seven batches. Total of about almost 500 liters, which is a lot of alcohol when you're starting with apples. Yeah. So 500 liters, LAA, they call it, probably took me 7,000 liters of cider. So because I make all of my neutral alcohol from cider 
right. originally. I had 500 liters of gin and all of it was good, but none of it was exactly right. So the, I dialed the recipe in and then I thought, you know what, what am I going to do with this? Oh, for fun. I phoned one of my neighbor wineries and said, as soon as you bottle some Pinot Noir, I want one of your Pinot Noir barrels, a French oak barrel, Pinot Noir, just rinse it, I'll grab it. So I bought a couple barrels from them. I thought I'd get some nice color out of it because of the Pinot Noir. So I threw this 500 liters into two barrels. And then I thought, okay, it can't have the same flavor profile or too similar flavor profile to our first gin. I was going for some people called an old Tom effect of the gin, an aged gin. So I put it in the barrels, but then we did a cold maceration of extra juniper and cardamom. And what else was in there? Juniper, cardamom, I can't remember. But we punched those up in order to give it a different flavor profile, plus the aging, plus the influence of the Pinot Noir, gave us our second gin, which we call Copper Gin. The second gin was born out of mistake. But because like I'm a cheap, happy gincident. <laughs> yeah, it's a very happy gincident. <laughs> and it was born of mistakes and I hate waste because it really is a lot of work to make a liter of spirits when you start with apples. So much more work than it is using grain and much more expensive too. So because I'm cheap, I have a lot of Scottish blood in me from <laughs> ways back. I thought, okay, and it was good. So that's where our copper gin was born. So those were our first two gins. And lo and behold, as I learned to make gin, I got over my trauma from my younger years. Right. And I really enjoy gin now. I like it best with tonic. I also find that the garnish is such an important part of yes. your cocktail. But every g and I ever got always had lime in it. And so our couch and gin is a gentle gin. And we actually use cucumber peel as one of the botanicals in the gin. And we use a lot of greenery, I call it. There's basil, there's lavender, there's the stems from tomatoes on the vine. Ooh. They have a really cool yeah, aroma. Great. Yeah, great smell. Yeah. We pluck the tomatoes. Yeah. It was, oh, that's good smell. Let's throw that in. <sighs> so because of that, our first gin, if you put lime in it, it was too acidic. It was wrong. It didn't fit the flavor profile. So we use slices of cucumber. And originally, the cucumber slices we used were actually from the greenhouse two kilometers away from us. They're a cucumber producer. They had a fire, so they're not around anymore, unfortunately. But so the cucumber was our garnish with that one. And so when we're making the gins now, we actually think about how is that going to go in a cocktail? What are you going to garnish it with? And we want the garnishes to be paired with that gin, believe it or not. We're like now dialing it in and pairing the garnish with the gin. Good. So do you make recommendations to people when they're buying your gin? Is it on the bottle, on your website? Like, how do people know that? It's on our website because everything's on our website. Okay. So for a long time, I think we're guilty of putting way too much stuff out there. Back in 2000, we actually built a self-guided tour. We saw one in a winery in California and thought, oh, that's cool. And we just decided the best way to educate people and make them loyal to our products is to educate them. And the more they know about us, hopefully the more passionate they feel about our products because we're really proud of everything we make. And our staff is proud of what they do and cool. If you know, if we don't connect with you, that's okay. I always say when I'm doing cider tastings, like we'll do a tasting of four or five different ciders for people. We have, I don't know, eight or 10 or I don't know how many ciders we have. Now. And so we'll do a tasting and put a glass on the counter and we say, it's okay. You have to take two sips of it. But if you don't like it, just pour it out. Because I'm pretty confident that my in my range of ciders, 
there's going to be a couple that meet your needs, your palate. And the same with spirits. If you don't like it, that's okay. Try one of our others because I'm pretty sure I've got one that you'll like. That's our goal. Absolutely. I mean, not everyone likes every gin, but there is a gin for everyone. I think you're right. I think you're right. Which leads us to the latest one. It was just before COVID. Actually, I do remember. My youngest child, it was he started early on in his education studying engineering. And we were driving somewhere. I can't remember where we were driving. Anyway, and so we talked about there were some colored gins just starting to come out. And he said, no, 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 no. We can't just color the gin, Dad. Now, he knows nothing about making booze. Now he's 24 years old, but he likes the science of things. So he said, there's so many natural pH indicators out there. Why don't we find a natural pH indicator? And the we was, Dad, you do the work. Yeah, the royal um, we. Yeah. <laughs> I like to um, <laughs> Yeah. So we started playing around with natural pH indicators that would give a cool color change. And, you know, as it turns out, there are two that are really quite unique, and they are hibiscus and Thai butterfly pea flower. And so like everything, you know, you think you have a great idea and then somebody else puts it on the market just before you do. That actually deflated me a little bit. And so I lost interest in it. It went on the back burner for a little while because you don't want to look like a copycat. There is a gin made not far from our home in Victoria. And we're very uh, familiar with it. (laughs) That came on the market, you know, six months before we would have got there. And it was, oh, everybody's going to think I just copied Empress Jim. And I don't want to be a copycat. And I also didn't want to steal their, I can't steal their thunder. They're on such a different scale than we are. But I didn't want to feel like I was, you know, treading on their turf. So we waited until some more came out. Ours is quite different, A, in taste, but also in the color, because we don't just use butterfly pea. So we use hibiscus. We use lavender and the butterfly pea, and that's our color is quite different. If you look closely, they all look the same. They're all purple, right? Uh, Or blue. Ours is distinctively purple. It's not blue at all. And so the mixture of all of those then gives us a really distinctive color, not as impactful a color change when you add your soda or tonic, but that's okay. That wasn't the goal. The goal was flavor. And then the color is always beautiful. But one of the things we realized while we were going through this is I had never spent much time paying or designing our spirits around the pH of the spirit. And doing a spirit that's a pH indicator makes you pay attention to that a lot more. What I was reminded of was that the water we use is actually from our own artesian well. It's 250 feet below ground. It's beautiful water. Vancouver Island has, that's one of our resources, right? And because the water we use is pH of about 8.2, so we have alkaline spirits, which, which there awesome. are, yeah, there are a lot of people who strive to drink alkaline water and they strive to do that. Yeah. Well, I so, drink 9.5. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, so ours is eight too. Well, that's pretty darn good. That's so amazing. all of our spirits start above 7%. They're all alkaline. Well, it was also a problem. And that's why I said it reminded me when I first became aware of it. It was a problem for us because we got cloudy spirits when we started the reduction. So we had to treat the water differently. But that was me focused on achieving a clearness goal instead of seeing the benefits of the high pH water. The high pH water was a problem for me. You have to flip your thinking around. We actually do our reductions all 
with chilled spirits and chilled water. So everything's chilled to two or three degrees. And then the reduction is done. And we never add more than 20 liters at a time. Okay. And so because when you add water to alcohol, you create heat. Right. And heat, it can cook off your aromas. Okay. So if you want to maintain most of your aromas, you do a cold reduction slowly, in our opinion. Oh. So spirits are done with slow reduction, very slow reduction, with always at chill. A lot of our filtrations are done with chilled product as well. So we'll chill the product. We have lots of walk-in coolers from our cider manufacturing. We actually take the spirits and put the tank in the walk-in cooler and chill them down to two or three degrees before we filter. And that allows the filtration to be less impactful on the spirits. Well, that's our theory anyway. That's cool. And a very different way for sure. Yeah. Well, because we're small, And because, you know, time is free, of course, we think, okay, is there a benefit to doing something? Yes. Okay. How much extra time does it take? Can we do it? Do we have the facilities to do it? Yeah. Okay. If there's a benefit, then we're going to try it. And some of them we stick with and some of them we go, you know what? The benefit's pretty marginal and it takes four times as long as it should, whatever. But most of them we've stuck with because we're a small farm craft producer. Okay. So let's talk about sustainability, which you mentioned a couple of times is being super important to you. And I know that, you know, with the farm, with your 10 mile local philosophy and all that, like how else are you putting in sustainability into practice? Well, actually, in every decision we make, our impact on our community, we call it, as it's not just the ground and the air, and it's everything around us. In every decision we make, our impact on the community is a key consideration. It's not the only one, obviously. We need to stay in business. We've been in business 25 years, and we'd like to keep going. So everything from we have not sprayed a single herbicide or pesticide on our property since 2000. Wow. Um, We grow dandelions on purpose. We grow them for the native bees to feed off and the honeybees to feed off because it's the first food crop that's available in the season. We've always worked with local beekeepers. We bring their hives in. And over the years, they've all found that their hives flourish because we don't spray any herbicides or pesticides. And our neighbors are all dairy farms and they don't spray because they don't have, I mean, other than grass, they don't really have any crops, right? So the environment is important. We partnered with native bee habitats with blue mason bees. So we have people who grow, I call it growing blue mason bees on our property and they take the queens and they sell the queens and try to make sure that backyard gardeners all have blue mason bees. Even when it comes to decisions on packaging, we consider the carbon footprint of all of our packaging. The cheapest is always from offshore. Our one liter plastic bottles are made in Canada. Oh. Our, when we buy cans, it's almost impossible to get them anywhere but offshore now. They, uh, but when we do that, we get a whole container at a time because that's way better than shipping two pallets at a time and by truck. So is it more expensive? Well, it's certainly a big cash outlay in the wintertime when we don't have any cash. Right. Um, but all of those things are how can we minimize our negative impact on the environment. And so we're now doing an assessment by the biosphere. And we, my wife is headlining a drive on Vancouver Island for sustainable tourism, agri-friendly tourism effectively, and making that not just a marketing tool to make people feel good because they come to our farm and we're sustainable, but make it more of a philosophy of business. It's okay you can still run your business and be sustainable. Yes, it might cost you a little bit more in the short term, but in the long term, better. We're caretakers for our farm. 
right? So at some point, our farm won't have apple trees on it anymore. It'll be something else. And I hope that when we leave, anything we've done to that land has been an enhancement or at least neutral on the impact on that land. Sustainability also means we need to make enough money to pay our staff and pay our bills. That's part of being sustainable too. Our staff have to live in our community and live and raise their children and live with their partner or spouse or whatever. That's part of being sustainable too, that our staff is healthy and happy. And so sustainability is a choice, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a choice for not just every distiller, but every business. All righty. So we are now at the Gincident story time. I know you've already shared one. Is there any other Gincident you'd care to share? No. Mine is how failures lead to, to success. I'd say that's a Or pretty- cheapness. Cheapness leads to success. <laughs> Economical. <laughs> yes, that's right. Conservatism. Yes. Sustainability. <laughs> That's been, and there you have it. Everything you ever wanted to know about Marydale Cidery and Distillery, their product development philosophy, what it means to be craft in BC, their philosophy on sustainability and how they put it in practice, all their amazing, amazing, yummy products, and so much more. Thank you, Rick, for being here today. Thank you so much, Heather, for having us and tons of fun. And I look forward to hearing all the rest of your wonderful podcasts. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Be sure to leave us a review and check out the show notes for links to Marydale Cidery and Distillery and the ginshop.ca for all your gin clothing and novelty needs. Until next time, remember, don't cry over spilt milk. It could have been gin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ginspired, brought to you by theginshop.ca. If we've ginspired you, let us know by leaving us a comment and a review, or drop us a note at heather at theginshop.ca. We may even read your email or feature your ginspirational story in an upcoming episode. And remember to follow us on social media. Until next time, let the party be gin.